to you all and a very, very warm welcome to this edition of the Graham Norton Book Club. I handily am Graham Norton and also handily I have a whole host of books to talk to you about. Helping me spin the yarns is the mistress of the literary loom herself, Sarah Collins. Hello, and I must I slightly hesitate to ask you this, given your and Alex's track record over the last few weeks. How are you? I'm cursed, Graham, is the short answer. <laughs> <laughs> What's happened now? Right, you aren't going to believe it. But I've had another accident since I saw you last. No. It involved me getting a ride to the hospital. Conveniently, I was at the hospital when the accident occurred. That is handy. Picture me on my way out of the car, hoisting myself into my wheelchair using the door frame. When my friend accidentally, I think, and she says, slammed the front door on my right hand. <laughs> So it took me a moment to process it. And I'm ashamed to say I then dissolved into absolute hysterics in front of the Chelsea and Westminster Hospital, wailing, my hands are all I have left. <laughs> well, your left hand is all you have left. <laughs> I thought my life was that, you know, that old Monty Python sketch? Oh, yes. Um, I'd be sort of nothing but a torso flailing around, <laughs> insisting it's only a flesh wound. <laughs> Well, look after that left hand. <laughs> and perhaps our book this week can take your mind off it all. It is My Name is Red by Nobel Prize winning Turkish novelist and screenwriter Orhan Pamuk. A tale of love, death, cultural clashes and talking coins. I'll explain later. Here to discuss it are Saima, who chose the book for us, Kavern, Katie and Gabby. Hello, everybody. Hello. Hello. As one they spoke. Uh, how are you all doing? Katie, you've had a, an, have you accidentally got rid of your clothes? <laughs> I mean, no, I would say that's um, just for the clarification. She is dressed I'm not, I'm not she sat is here naked. Yeah, just FYI. So I had a classic January clear out my wardrobe and then decided, oh, eBay, fun, let's do that. And then got the selling bug. And I've now got to a point where I've like, it's getting quite desperate of how few changes of outfit I now have. <laughs> it gets, it's so addictive though. You see it like, especially on the auction and it gets ticking away. And then I started in on my girlfriend, Biff's wardrobe. And now I'm banned from going near her side of the wardrobe because she found out that I'd sold one of her dresses she really liked. So, um, wow. I think, I think I've made more than I actually have. You know, I think you get excited about £10 bidding wars and then you look at the actual amount. I'm not sure I've actually come out quids in. <laughs> I think I've just ended up with no clothes. <laughs> yeah, put it put in a fund, spend it on something nice. All right, well, we'll be back in a bit to find out if my name is red, brightened up your world, or if everything is still looking a bit monochrome. After we've spoken to Orhan Pamuk himself, and after Sarah has given us her three of her best, and size in this case is a, is a factor, I believe. Is that right? Well, we're going long this week, Graham. All of the books are over 500 pages. That was my criteria this week. And they're all tests of whether our poor attention spans are being withered by social media because they require yourself to be uh, well and truly immersed. Okay. It says here, I look forward to that. <laughs> <laughs> I do. I look forward to that and to finding out more about this moment. The tour showed me that I don't become Sporty Spice. She's not an outfit or a costume. She's part of me. And she's never gone away. Sporty is part of me because she is me. And she has been me since I was a kid bombing around the estate on my little blue rally, risking life and limb in the playground 
doing tricks on the bars and holding my own against the boys. Melanie Chisholm, a.k.a. Mel C., a.k.a. Sporty Spice, has unpacked what went into being one-fifth of the 90s megaband, The Spice Girls, in her autobiography, Who I Am, and we'll speak to her about that later on in Talking Books. Okay, time to talk about our book of the week. My Name is Red, translated into English by Erdag M. Guckner, is a murder mystery, a love story, and an exploration of artistic expression, all at the same time. Set in Istanbul in 1591, the story is told in the voices of 21 different narrators, including a corpse, a picture of a horse, death, the colour red itself, and, as we mentioned, a gold coin, all of whom directly address the reader. We hear first from Elegant Effendi, who is dead at the bottom of a well, killed for saying the book he's involved with making for the Sultan is blasphemous because of its use of European artistic techniques. The book has been commissioned by Aneshte Effendi, who has employed three expert miniaturists to help him. While the search for Elegant continues, Black, Aneshte's nephew, returns from 12 years of exile for having confessed his love for Aneshte's ravishingly beautiful daughter, Shakura. She now has two children, Orhan and Shevket. But her husband, a soldier, has been missing for over four years and Black sets out to win her back. At the same time, he's asked by her father to help with the controversial book and subsequently gets involved in trying to discover who killed Elegant. Suspicion has fallen on the three miniaturists his uncle has employed, especially when Anishta himself is also brutally murdered. The book weaves together these narrative threads alongside Persian stories, as well as exploring the clash between traditional artistic conventions and the progressive European influences beginning to infiltrate an increasingly international Ottoman Empire. Orhan Pamuk grew up in Istanbul and began his career as a painter and an architect, but turned to writing, publishing his first novel, Doctors and Light, in 1979 to huge critical acclaim. My Name is Red came out in 1998 and increased his international reputation. In 2006, he was awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature, described as a writer who, in the quest for the melancholic soul of his native city, has discovered new symbols for the clash and interlacing of cultures. When we spoke, I started with his use of stories within stories. My Name is Red is about old Islamic classical Sufi tales, what I did also with my black book too, that I secularized them and tried to see literary metaphysics in them, all of these games, allusions, repetitions, and I tried to let the story speak and intertwine the old stories in a new way with new characters. And as a, a Western reader, To me, all the stories are new. Uh, Would a Turkish reader be very familiar with some of these stories? Are they, you know, very well known, like a fable? When the book was published, it was also very popular in Europe. And one Dutch journalist said, Mr. Pamuk, we enjoy your My Name is Red so much, but we are sorry because we don't know these classical old Ottoman Sufi stories. 
And we are sorry because we do not enjoy your book as much as perhaps Turkish readers who know these stories. And I said, no, don't worry. Turkish readers also don't know these stories <laughs> because Westernization it made them forget this. In fact, this is Turks forget what they have read their Shakespeare's and changed their Shakespeare's in a way. Their Shakespeare used to be Rumi or other classics and they turned to West. I approve this change. What I am critical of is forgetting. I am a westernizer. But that doesn't mean that you have to forget the past. And in fact, my all of my books are remembering the past with a secular, modern, western outlook. Obviously, at the heart of this book is is a kind of tr- almost a traditional murder mystery. There's the, the double murder, and we're, we're finding the clues and we're solving that. Which kind of came first? Were you writing them at the same time? Were you fitting the stories to the plot or how did that work? The philosophy of the book is also perfect for a murder story because someone is dead and the way of finding that person perhaps is hidden in the style of the hands of various painters, miniaturists who were using old-fashioned brushes. Now, In old medieval, whether this is European or Islamic times, that the individuality or the style of the painter was not that important. What was important was to copy the old classics, while modernity gave us and put on a pedestal the individuality of the artists and their styles. But I argue in the book that you cannot invent a style. A style is a failure. It's something that you do, you invent unintentionally. You make a mistake. You are, you cannot copy perfectly. So the murderer also leaves a trace by mistake. Style and the murderer's mistake are the same things. And here our directive is searching for these mistakes. Uh, Saima Aslan has some questions. She wants to know about your name being in the book, your name, your brother's name, your mother's name's in the book. Is that just for fun or are they sort of little, are they pen portraits of those actual people, of you? Both that I always have little allusion to myself, just because Hitchcock appears in his movies does not lend a great meaning to the film. But yes, in 1950s, my father was absent from the family. And Shekure is my mother's name. Shevket is my brother's name. And there's also a little Orhan. And my mother used to, without a father around, show us around and protect us. I took 1950s, as I sometimes jokingly say, to 1590s to Istanbul and projected that. I like writing historical novels, but I also want to tell to the reader that, hey, reader, this is artificial. Look, I'm putting myself into this historical novel, but it still works because I got the other details so meticulously right that you also enjoy my postmodern acrobatics in a way. And Simon says, uh, while it's an historical novel, uh, it's also been described as a modern novel, depicting sort of modern tensions in society. Uh, What's your view on that? What's your view on how people choose to read this book? Even if we are writing a historical novel that takes place 2,000 years ago, we are, of course, referring to to today. But what is the level of your reference? Are you making direct 
connections. As I, for example, I just published a novel, Knights of Plague, which I began writing five years ago and, and three and a half years into writing it. Coronavirus started. I tried to avoid making direct connections to what's happening today while I also realized that I could not behave as if it's not happening. I reshaped the book. I wondered what it was like for you writing Knights of Plague because when the events started to catch up with your book, were, were you excited? Did you think, oh my goodness, I can't believe I'm writing such a, a book at the moment? In such as it happens to all of us, in such moments, we develop many, many conflicting reactions. One was feeling guilty because all of my friends begin to go, wow, your novel is now actuality. It is on the news. While my aunt are, is one of the first victims of um, coronavirus in Istanbul, and she was living three streets away from me. I was also scared. And I felt guilty as if the coronavirus leaked from my manuscript to the world because when I was writing, it was so private and intimate. Suddenly, everything was in the newspapers. I also tried to keep my calm. I also wanted to say to the whole world, hey, I was thinking of this novel for three and a half years. I know about this subject. And I've talked to, to writers before about the pressure of coming back after a big hit. If you write a, a book that's a huge international success, there's a pressure on you. What's it like after winning the Nobel Prize? What's it like going back to your picking up your pen after that? Was it hard? I'm lucky not only that I received Nobel Prize, but perhaps one of the youngest persons when it, it, he received the prize and I was in the middle of a Museum of Innocence. So in the end, I gave a two-month break and continued with the same enthusiasm as ever. And because I had so many projects for me, Nobel Prize is not a retirement plan, but they gave me a new readers. When I received the prize, I have was only translated to 46 languages, now 63 or 64 languages. It's a responsibility and a joy to address this possibility and having so many readers in so many languages and talking to them through interviews. Listen, very quickly, those questions that we ask everybody. Okay. Wow. Yeah, okay. here we go. It's the book that turned you on to reading, unlocked the world of books for you. I turned on to reading because my brother was reading a lot of children's books. So it's not a one single book, but my brother not only read children's books, but also collected them. This publisher, comic books, this publisher, children's weekly special annual issue, this kind of thing. That made me follow books and gave me a sense of there will be some publications and you have to pursue them, buy them, collect them, read them and find friends who talks about these things. Buying books is also, you understand immediately that you need friends with whom you can talk about these books. It's also when you buy a book and read a book, you're also looking for a whole new community. Next book I want to know is uh, a book that you feel not enough people know. I think not enough people know about the great Austrian writer Thomas Bernhard. I think he should have been more famous. He wrote so many books. He's so prolific. Every time I read it, I laugh and I like his intensity, his honesty, his candor, his sincerity. Thomas Bernhard. Okay. And the final book, uh, the book you admire so much, you wish Orhan Pamuk was on the cover. 
I admire Tolstoy and Borges. They are greats for me. I, from Tolstoy, I learned the sense of the novel. From Borges, I learned metaphysics of fiction. I, in fact, tried to combine them in my work in my corner of the world, in Istanbul. All of my works, books, is perhaps an attempt to write a Tolstoyan novel with the Borgesian metaphysics that takes place in Istanbul. You can call all of my novels like that. If I can't write as good as them, then I'd again be myself and be more modest, but not to try to be someone else. Orhan Pamuk talking about his own novels, My Name is Red, and his new title, Knights of Plague, and some other very weighty tomes. And Sara, I believe we're staying with works of substance. Well, so this did inspire me to think about three that I think did this. And the first one I think is going to persuade you, even though it weighs in at over 800 pages. It's The Crimson Petal and the White by Michelle Faber. It's a sexy, very sexy, sprawling Dickensian doorstep of a novel, which I absolutely love in which we follow the fortunes of a ferociously intelligent prostitute in Victorian London, as well as the wealthy perfume manufacturer who becomes obsessed with her, eventually moving her into his house, where she poses as a governess to his daughter, right under the nose of his ailing wife, who's kept locked up, not quite in the attic, but near enough. So all of the tropes are there if you're looking for a sort of big doorstep Victoriana. Has that convinced you yet? I mean, maybe. Faber is really good at mastering kind of realms of historical detail in a way that you're never overwhelmed by his research. But I think the reason so many people were obsessed with this book when it came out in 2002 is because it sort of pulls away that starchy Victorian prudity and you get the sort of feverish, unfiltered desires of the characters. I cannot overemphasize what a maelstrom of sex and drugs and revenge plots it is. And so the 800 pages just fly by. Now I'm sold. <laughs> uh, I knew I'd do it eventually. <laughs> okay. Uh, what's, your, what's your second choice? Another masterful, huge uh, book, A Brief History of Seven Killings by Marlon James, the first Jamaican to win the Booker Prize. So he had to appear in one of my lists somewhere. And he uses the attempted assassination of Bob Marley in Kingston in Jamaica in 1981 as the springboard for this absolutely razor-sharp chronicle of Jamaica during that time period, which was a fascinating one because the country was essentially ripped apart, not just by homegrown political violence, but also the corrupt interference of the CIA. I have a personal connection to the material because it's the time when my own family was forced to kind of join the exodus from the country that took place then. But even if I hadn't, I would have found it mesmerising. It's sweeping, it's really well-researched, and it's energised by a remarkable playfulness with language. So you get Jamaican patois, you get American journalist lingo, you get drug lords and gun runners opining on all sorts of things. You get a lot of stuff I never knew about the role of the CIA in the making of the Caribbean. It's really pacey. It's very graphic. It's a really ambitious novel, but James's talent matches his ambition. 
Because that must be the the sort of real challenge in doing a book this long is keeping up that pace, as you say, keeping it, you know, the, the narrative drive going forward the whole time. Yeah, so he's got no problem with that. And if anything, almost too much happens in this book. I, I remember having to take breaks and breathers because it is really full of pace. It's also full of characters, 75 characters he juggles in this book, but they each come across as really distinct and fully fleshed and interesting. Okay, let's find out your final choice. Final choice. One I love, but I always do like to have a controversial pick. Some people will hate it. Apparently, the Sunday Telegraph refused to review this book because its critic found the novel unreadable, and I quote, it is Cloud Atlas by David Mitchell. I really love fiction that requires some work on the part of the reader. And this book does. It's a series of six interlocking stories. They span a thousand years and they range from the diary of a 19th century American lawyer in the Pacific, a dissolute English composer acting as amanuensis to a syphilitic maestro, an enslaved fabricant in a dystopian near-future career, and so on. And they all seem like they can't go together. But what unites them is they spin out from this kind of contemplation of our apocalyptic future. But they're also about what I think all great stories are about, which is our shared humanity and how we're all sort of fundamentally the same. It's quite difficult to read at times, but it's utterly brilliant. And the investment of the time it takes to read it is worth every minute. It's a mind-expanding read, in my opinion. I know what you mean. I've talked to people who couldn't get on with it at all. They they really didn't like it. I mean, it's very clever and it could feel alienating. You know, in the same way that I think some people will think my name is read is alienating because it's one of those books that you think, I don't quite understand this. And I did during the reading of Cloud Atlas several times think this is going way above my head. But oh, I adore it. I just love it. I'm going to reach for it and grasp as much as I can. And it was a truly satisfying reading experience in spite of the fact Probably because of the fact that a lot of it just seems so frightfully clever. Uh, well, look, thank you very much, Sarah. And uh, just a reminder, by the way, if you've been too busy trying to get me on page three of War and Peace, I confess I never have. <laughs> I have got past page one. Um, to note down the titles we've been talking about, just visit the Amazon or Audible website, search for the Graham Norton Book Club, and you'll find our webpage with all of the books that get mentioned on the podcast. Okay, time to dive into My Name is Red. The clubbers joining us to do that are PhD candidate, lecturer and Instagram book reviewer, Gabby Humphreys. Hi, Gabby. Hi again. Ex-bookseller, now fully-fledged literary agent, Katie Blagden. Hello to you. Hello. Hi. Former teacher, now social worker and timeline maker, Gavern Bennett. Hi. Hello, everyone. And the mastermind behind the Bradford Literary Festival, Saima Aslam, MBE, who chose My Name is Red for us to read. So, Saima, what inspired you to bring this to book club? You know, what do you like about Orhan Pamuk? I heard Orhan speak quite a long time ago at the Oxford Literary Festival, and I was I was really intrigued. And at the time, I hadn't actually read any of his books. And then I went to Istanbul a couple of years ago, 
and I went to the Top Kapi Palace and was really struck by suddenly seeing some language that I could understand and just that change that Turkey has had with the end of the Ottoman Empire and the modernization and all of these wonderful things. And then this year is the 100-year anniversary of the actual end of the Ottoman Empire and the birth of the modern Middle East, which is something we're going to do in the festival. So that was where the inspiration, and I was like, right, I now have to read Orhan Pamuk. And I was talking to someone and they said to me that the book to read is My Name is Red. I read My Name is Red and I absolutely loved it. It was such a lovely experience because... There was so much richness in it. There was, you know, all these references to these old masterpieces and sort of bringing them back to life. And just that whole thing of kind of how the Ottomans butted up against the West. And literally everything I'd been thinking about came to life in this book. So it, it was just really, really fascinating. Uh, Katie, were you drawn into My Name is Red? Were you fascinated by it? I now feel quite guilty because... Those were all really, like, (laughs) amazingly intense, deep, really brilliant points there. (laughs) This is going to sound terrible, but I just felt really resentful of someone picking such a big book for book. (laughs) (laughs) That's the initial first reaction. Here's the thing. Okay, he's an amazing writer, incredible. And it's one of those ones where I felt like I wanted to sort of, like, dip in and out, and you sort of want to absorb in, and it's very beautiful. And so I just started getting really stressed basically, because I was like, the deadline was coming down for us doing the recording. And I was like, oh, no, I don't know who the murderer is yet. I don't know what's going on. So um, I think I would have enjoyed it, but didn't actually enjoy this particular reading experience. I'm so sorry. Feel very guilty now. <laughs> Let's try Gavern. Did you find pleasure in the pages of My Name is Red? Actually, I have to agree with Katie to a certain degree, because actually this is a book I should have like loved because it's got like murder in there. There's a detective story. And actually, one thing I loved about this story is it gives you all these tales from Turkey that are part of that culture. Right. And I love that. I thank the author for that. But if I don't feel it, then I can't deal in it. Right. And this book made me think, but it didn't make me feel. That's how I felt when I read it. Yes. And I tried. I tried. <laughs> I read it on a beach in Jamaica. Right. Most beautiful place in the world. If the book doesn't hit you on that beach, then it's not hitting you. I mean, that, that is interesting, that, that idea of, you know, thinking and feeling. Uh, Gabby, how did it make you feel? Oh, <laughs> not, not happy. I appreciated the book. Okay, let's start positive. I appreciated um, the stories what, of What art. did you appreciate about the book? <laughs> Try it, you appreciated its bookness? How you can use it as a doorstop? Oh. <laughs> I mean, okay, so talking of doorstops and the weight of the book, I will say that I didn't end up finishing this. I got to chapter 50 and read study guide notes <gasps> for summaries. Because I couldn't oh. do it anymore. Was that because you were at the deadline or because you just couldn't bear to read any more of it? Both. <laughs> oh, no. And I threw said doorstop on the floor when I'd done. I really had a strop. Uh, but, Simon, can I ask you, because one of the things I felt, I felt like I, I was listening to music through a wall. I really felt like if I knew more of this culture, if I knew more of these stories, I would be appreciating this book more. Were you familiar with some of these Persian tales and things? Yeah, I think actually that's part of what's going on here. I think for me... Um, I wouldn't say I've grown up with them in the sense of, because it's, it's Persian culture and you have to be familiar with the Persian epics, but I think there's such a, 
you know, culture is so porous between the, the South Asian epics and the, the Farsi epics, which is what you've got going on here, because I think probably the nearest equivalent I can give to you is it's like growing up in the UK and hearing about Romeo and Juliet all the time, even mm-hmm. if you have never read Romeo okay. and Juliet. They're like in all the Urdu ghazals and they're in the Punjabi Sufiana, Sufi poetry, which kind of like comes from Rumi. And they're like, they're just like reference points. Yeah. But for you, it must be a much richer read, Saima. Yeah, I think, I mean, I just absolutely loved reading it because obviously the there's very few books that you read where you actually get those references. And I thought it was really lovely when Oren was saying about how, you know, the past and the present weave together and everything that we write now is actually, um, even though it's historical, it's reflecting the present. And I suppose what I loved about this book was... It centred those tales, but it centred them in a time when they were actually really, really important. Interestingly, about the whole like cultural side of it and all of those amazing tales and fables and stuff, that was the bit I enjoyed most, weirdly. Oh. And actually, I do think characters and the plot left me a bit cold. And I got a bit annoyed with the murder mystery element. I just was like, oh. <laughs> I got quite annoyed that it was branded as a murder mystery because although oh, there yeah. was a mystery about a murder, <laughs> I think a murder, a murder mystery. mystery has to be yeah. fast-paced and entertaining <laughs> I'm not sure Orhan's ever read Agatha Christie yeah. <laughs> he's not watched Glass Onion last month <laughs> what I did like about this book is it really made me understand what's specific about the Renaissance painting coming from Europe at a particular period and then why it's different to what came out of Turkey at that time and out of Protestant Europe I thought thank you Mr Pamuk because you've actually made me understand why certain Western paintings speak to me in one way and why miniatures speak to me in another way. And the relationship between stories and paintings in Turkish culture. I did engage with it emotionally on that level. What I did appreciate about it is that there is this kind of trend and we're consuming literature in the West and there's this idea of sort of the supremacy of Western ideas and Western art. Pamuk is not trying to sort of pander to a Western audience by translating stuff from his own culture, by explaining it, by dumbing it down. And that is a very refreshing perspective, even if it does take a little bit of sort of time and patience for us to penetrate as Western readers. I think from my point of view as a very like Western-centric person, if you can't get to somewhere and actually go and experience a culture, reading is like the next best thing. And so for me, I really loved all of that immersion. My only complaint was that I was trying to do it on a deadline. So I was like, I can't sit here and enjoy these miniatures. I've got to get through and find out who the murderer is. <laughs> it was like being on a tour with a really like annoying tour guide who's like, no time to stop, follow the umbrella. And then like straight through and you're like, I just want to absorb it a bit more, please. And in terms of, you know, when you got to the end, when it was finished... Was anyone's... Well, Gabby didn't get to the end, but... but, I did, technically. No, you didn't, (laughs) technically. (laughs) (laughs) Gavern and and Katie, was there that sense of satisfaction you get over the long, at the end of a novel? Were you pleased you'd got to the end? I mean, on all sorts of levels. (laughs) I got a bit lost, uh, you know, near the end, because there were so many things going on. I didn't have that sense of, like, closure. And because it's meant to be like a murder mystery, normally at the end of a murder mystery, you're just like, yeah... Bang, I know who it is. At the end of this, I was like, okay, I've been on a fantastic journey there, but I'm not sure what happened. It was nice, though. Did you find it, because you were slipping between the, the, the audio and the book, Katie. Yeah. Did you find it easier to read than to listen to or the other way around? 
if I had the luxury of time, I would have sat and read it in hard copy. It's one of those books where there are passages of just poetry, and even when he's describing artwork, the way he describes artwork, mm. I was like, oh, I love yeah. it. I did appreciate the artwork. I'd love like a illustrated version of it as well, which I know is not the point. And also, were you confused by the number of narrators? Yeah, if you don't catch the beginning chapter where it says, my, I am a horse, yes. you're suddenly like, wait, what? <laughs> Who's talking now? This, I actually wrote I wrote notes on my phone for the first couple of chapters. Yeah, if you're, if you're listening whilst cleaning, just keep an eye out when it suddenly turns into a new chapter because it will suddenly be like, I am a dervish or something. And you're like, what? <laughs> <laughs> what? Okay. I actually set it so it stopped playing after each chapter. So then it gave me a oh, couple clever. of minutes to realise. Mm. And be like, okay, I'm ready. What are we now? Mm. Uh, well, listen, I've loved talking about the book. Uh, so let's find out how likely people are to recommend it to anybody. I'll start with you, Casey, out of 10. If you are not part of a book club where you've got a time limit, I'd rate it quite highly. It's beautiful writing. If you can't get to Turkey and Istanbul, <laughs> you can't go and wander around the city. It's an amazing way to get immersed in that. So I would say like seven, definitely. It's, I, I did enjoy it. Okay, strong score. Uh, Gavern, what, th- what are you feeling? Um, I wouldn't recommend this to all my friends, okay? Um, I'd recommend it to the friends that consider themselves intellectual. So I've got to be careful what I'm saying because I might have to talk to these people afterwards, right? But um, I would I would give it a, a solid six, but I would read it again. Uh, Gabby, uh, how likely are you to recommend this book? I, I'm going to be fair. I'm going to give it a four because for me, it was a pretty horrible reading experience, but I really enjoyed the aspects of art in it. And I do think you will know from the blurb straight away if this book is for you or not. Okay. And Simon, now that you have recommended it to people, how, li- how likely are you to recommend it again? <laughs> I think it's one of those where you have to have maybe certain kinds of interests. It's not a book I would recommend to everyone, but there are certain people who I, you know, I have recommended it to and I know they will love it. So, um, you know, I'd give it a nine. I must say, I'm glad, I'm glad you recommended it because, well, you know, it's a book I never would have read. And, it, and as Katie says, it does open you up. No, it opens <laughs> you up to a world that, you know, I wasn't familiar with. So I, I really enjoyed that aspect of it. Uh, let's find out what we're reading next time. And it's the turn of Gabby. What are you recommending? Yes, this is Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow by Gabrielle Zevin. To me, this is the perfect balance of all genres. And I know that it's been taking the internet by storm for the plot, but also for the most amazing shiny holographic cover you ever did see. It's kind of a love story, but kind of a friendship story. Uh, the sadness, because we know I do like that in a book. Of course. Talk about mental health, identity. But then there's this really cool, almost fantasy element from worlds within games. It's so cool. I'm very excited to talk about it. Well, we'll find out if we judge a book by its cover next time with Gabby. That's Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow by Gabrielle Zevin. Uh, thanks, everyone, for talking about My Name is Red, and we'll speak to you along the way. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 It is that time when we turn to some talking books and a moment of revelation. Kate Bush, albeit 21 years old, and therefore ancient to my young guys, was something new, something more recognisable and reachable. I started to explore other music, Adam and the Ants, Michael Jackson and later Madonna. 
they all seemed to have one thing in common. They weren't just singers, they were performers. Melanie Chisholm's life changed forever when she answered an ad in the paper for 18 to 23-year-olds who could dance and sing and who were also streetwise outgoing and ambitious. The five Spice Girls were all of those things and together went on to become the best-selling girl group in history with fans all over the world. Girl power, a global phenomenon, a special reunion at the 2012 London Olympics, awards, movies and after that varied solo careers. Now Mel C, Sporty Spice herself, has decided to share her story in her autobiography, Who I Am, for which she's also done the audiobook. The majority of the others have already done theirs. Why, I wondered, had she waited till now? I have been reluctant for many, many years. And so many young people in the public eye, there's been like a a phase and an influx of so many people writing memoirs at very young ages. And I, I just never felt like I wanted to be that person. You know, I kind of felt like I really wanted to live a rich and interesting life before I got it down on paper. And I think I also had this thing about celebrities and a lot of the world that I've inhabited being a Spice Girl. I always saw these books as a bit of tabloid fodder as well. And that was something I really wanted to shy away from. And then we, of course, had the pandemic and I'd been on stage with the Spice Girls in 2019. The stadium shows were incredible. And it was a real moment of realisation of, all the things that we'd achieved. Of course, there's so much Spice Girls behind the scenes moments. But, you know, I've had, like anybody in any life, there's ups and downs and challenges. And I thought it was really important for me to share them and hopefully, you know, be a support and comfort to other people that might have experienced similar things. And I think you're kind of unique. Emma's written a book about parenting, but she hasn't written an actual memoir. But the others have. So there's these four books and a big chunk of them are telling kind of the same story. Did you read those before you wrote this one? I used them as research and speaking to the girls and speaking to friends and family because, you know, when you're in that crazy time, like the real, what I always call like the golden era of the Spice Girls through the mid to the late 90s, so much of it is a blur. And we all remember things slightly differently, which I think is just human nature. So it was really important for me to look back at those books and it sparked memories. But I think one of the great things I feel like really happy that I've left it this long is that there's been more to report. And I think also we all look back slightly differently now. And like I'm interested, I didn't read Victoria's book, but for instance, that contretemps between the two of you at the Brits, is that in her book and is her version similar to yours? I don't think it is in her book, actually, because I think, you know, probably for Victoria, with everything and all of her story and the intricacies of that, it was a tiny little thing. But obviously for me, it became something of a catalyst to what, you know, went on to be some bigger themes in my life. And I'm interested, you know, because obviously when you're going through things, you're just getting through them and, and you're here today and we know that you survived it all and you're thriving. But... When you put it all together, you know, your, your, your depression, your relationship with food, all of these things, was it worse than you remembered it being? What was it like putting it all together page after page? Gosh, it was a lot. I knew if I was going to write this book, there were certain things I'd have to delve back into that were going to be difficult. And 
those chapters were the toughest ones to write and the toughest ones to recover from, really. It was really important for me to express those things really honestly and and really descriptively as well. Something I really learned so much through the pandemic as well when we were apart was how important that connection is. And I think as an artist, as a performer, it's that thing that I missed. I kind of questioned who I was. And I've noticed something on the chat show when you'll have a guest and they'll tell stories and they're really funny and da da da, and then they'll come back on again and they they don't want to tell those stories. And the difference is they've had kids; they don't want their kids to hear the things. So, how aware were you of Scarlett at some stage in her life picking this book up? So she's come to work with me a lot over the years and I've spoken quite openly about some of the issues that I've had and and some of the experiences I've had and she's often been sat in the room so I realized oh gosh I'm gonna have to make this appropriate for her age at those times when these things have come up but she's kind of been there every step of the way and nothing is a surprise to her but then I did sit down and I thought you know what, obviously I speak about her dad and separating with her dad and, you know, going in depth into some of the thoughts and feelings I had through my disordered eating and depression. And I just sat down and said, there are things in the book I'm going to cover. Is there any questions you want to ask me? You know, I just thought it was really important to do that. And just to go on to the audiobook, I find this really interesting. Singers who are, you know, you're used to being in a recording studio, you're used to using your voice. What was it like speaking for that long? Awful. (laughs) (laughs) It was so hard. Oh, my goodness. I listened to a lot of audiobooks leading up to doing it because I was like, you know, I want to get the tone right. You know, I've done a little bit of acting as well. And then I thought, well, I don't want to go overly dramatic. And then I don't want to sound like I'm just reading it off the page. So it was just trying to find this middle ground. But I did not prepare myself for how grueling it is because you're really under pressure. I was reading all of these books. I was listening to these audio books and they were like, I think they were like, you know, about four, four and a half hours long. And I was like seven hours or something. And I was like, oh my goodness, I really, really stitched myself up on that one. But it was important for me to tell that story. I think I wanted it to be voiced by me. Listen, there's some questions we ask everybody. I don't know how important books were to you when you were growing up, but was there a book that you remember loving as a younger person or that kind of made you want to read more? I have kind of fallen in and out of love with books. I think because I've always been such an active person, I was always either playing sports or, no, you know, obviously, or (laughs) dancing or in the school production. So books often got left behind. But there was certain books I remember reading. I read Boy George's autobiography many years ago. And another one was Dusty Springfield. And that was one that kind of really spoke to me. It's quite bizarre, actually, because some of the experience that she had, I went on to have myself, you know, some of the dealings she had with the tabloid media and with, you know, her mental health. But yeah, as a young person, that was a book that struck me. Wow. And maybe it is that book, but are there books that you turn to when you are having a difficult time? If you are sensing a bout of depression or you're struggling with self-esteem, those sorts of things, are books ever helpful? I I think I went through phases of self-help books and I wouldn't say one book in particular. I've always been like really interested in health 
and well-being because people often say oh will there be another book and I just think wow I've kind of done so much research over the years in trying to heal myself it would be really lovely to share that knowledge with people. And the final book I want to know about is one that you really like that you would recommend to people. Well I read Fat Tony's autobiography well I listened to his audiobook I mean, I found it so inspiring. I've met him over the years at many events and it was just such an insight to him, his life, his experiences. It was funny actually because I was in Ibiza on holiday with my daughter when I was listening and there is a chapter on Ibiza and some of the shenanigans that went on over there, which was really fun to kind of look up into the hills and imagine imagine him running around getting lost. Mel C on who she is and the books that inspired her. It is nearly time to pack our paints away and fold our easels. But before we do that, audiobook insider and chart maven Holly Newson is here to put us in the picture about what titles are hip and happening in the Amazon Audible charts at the moment. Uh, Holly, uh, what is catching your artful eye? Well, Roxy Nafusi has two books in the overall charts at the moment. Her original bestseller, Manifest, and her second book, Manifest, Dive Deeper. Um, Until the age of 28, Roxy was full on partying and taking drugs. Uh, Given those book titles, you can probably see where this is going. She Mm -hmm. completely turned her life around. (laughs) Uh, She heard about Manifestation on a podcast and she really bought into it. Shout out to podcasts changing lives. Um, (laughs) The idea of manifesting, for anyone who doesn't know, is turning dreams into reality through visualisation, affirmation and action. And it became this huge thing in about 2020 and has stayed that way since. Cue the success of these books. Um, Book one defines the process, the steps of manifesting. Mm -hmm. And book two is more about overcoming thoughts and barriers that might get in your way. And Roxy has got this huge, huge number of fans. So she's going to be a chart staple for a while longer. And it's one of those things, you do want to give it a big old eye roll, but, you know, the proof is in the pudding. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> it's worked. I've started listening to one of them out of curiosity, and I can I can kind of get why it might work, because you just get your head into a mindset that you will succeed, and that's obviously going to help you succeed. Okay, well, that's the last we'll ever see of Holly. She's... <laughs> She's off to better things than this. Bye-bye now. <laughs> Bye. Uh, of course, hey, podcasts do change lives. Our clubbers are now all being driven around in stretch limos. Uh, what's next from your perspective? Um, I'm very intrigued by Really Good Actually by Monica Heisey, as this is doing really well in the overall charts at the minute. But it's particularly interesting as the ratings coming in are fairly mixed. Mm. Um, It was really hyped before release, got some great quotes from well-known people to add to the blurb. And many people have understandably been excited to read this as Monica's been a screenwriter on Schitt's Creek and Working Mums. Um, so I'd just be really interested to see how this does in the coming weeks and months uh, and to find out where people land on loving it or not. Uh, the book is about a young divorcee who's decided to put herself back out there and has a bit of an existential crisis in the process. And it's billed as being such a funny book. Um, it's actually on my to-read pile, so even if not everyone loved it, I'm still curious. Well, extreme opinions, I always think, is quite a good sign, isn't it? Mm. You might hate it, but you might love it. Yeah, I think the title has um, actually uh, come back to bite her a little bit because anyone who doesn't like it has just said, not really good, actually. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that might be part of it. 
You bear those things in mind when you <laughs> give your book a title. Uh, and a final flourish, Holly. A little mention for a book on one of my favourite subjects, sleep. Um, Lifetime by Russell Foster is on the most sold non-fiction chart, having had a boost when the paperback came out earlier this year. And on the slightly more niche end of the spectrum, it's also doing well on the neuropsychology charts. Of course. Um, and I'm really glad because apart from it being a good book, I met Russell and he's a really nice person. Uh, so basically, it's one of those win-wins. Oh, did he put you to sleep? Uh, <laughs> no. <laughs> Just nodded off talking to him. Uh, thank you very much, Holly. Don't forget, you can find details of all the books we talk about on our webpage. Just search for the Graham Norton Book Club on Amazon or Audible, and all the information you need will be right there. Our clubbers have gone off to see if they can buy Katie's clothes back at a discount, so it just remains for me to thank Sarah Collins for not injuring anything for the duration of this recording. That is true, isn't it? (laughs) The jury's still out. (laughs) Are you just going to sit very still in a padded room? I'm the girl in the plastic bubble from now <laughs> I, I know. You know when you say goodbye to people, you go, take care. I mean, seriously, take care. Yes. <laughs> uh, do join us next time when, amongst other things, we'll be talking about Gabby's choice of Gabrielle's Evans tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. Till then, happy reading and listening and goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.